Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, just stick your hand up, and uh, our ushers will make sure that you get one, especially today. Uh, we are kicking off our new series entitled Fit Church, and you saw uh, some of the things that we're talking about, nine marks of what it means to be a healthy church body. Now, we believe this to be um, hugely important because there's a lot of things out there today. Uh, a lot of people, groups come together, they talk about what a church is, and we have all these ideas of what, uh, what, what should be in church, what, like, what makes a good church, what's it about. Um, and we can look at buildings, we can look at dress, we can look at music, we can look at uh, multimedia, we can look at friendliness and, and bulletin and media and all of those different things, but do any of those things by themselves make a church healthy? And a church that is honoring to God. And that's, it's, that's not what it's about. It's not about the externals. It's about the internals. And the truth of the gospel being lived out on a day-by-day basis. So often that we make these cursory judgments about what it means to be a healthy church. And what it's supposed to look like. It's, it's a lot like relationships. And, I, and for those that are, that are married or will be married, what do you look for in a future mate? Or when you were getting ready to get married, what did you look for? Did you have a certain criteria in your mind? I mean, sometimes it's just the first person to come along. Um, but I remember when I was, I was a, a younger man, and uh, I knew that I wanted to be married. I was single. And I, I, before I came to know Jesus, I had a lot of just this string of bad relationships. And I knew that after I came to Christ, I wanted to know what God had for me to be married. So I, I uh, read this great book, and it sounds a little hokey, but it was called How to Find Your Perfect Mate. And in the book, though, it, it's not so much about going out and just finding the one. It's about the idea of using your mind and, and, and creating a set of criteria um, for what the relationship you're looking for. And and the author advocated um, taking a piece of paper and writing down three columns. At the top of the the first column, he put must-have. These are the must-haves, the non-negotiables that we're to have in um, the one we're looking for as a mate. And the second column, you put would-like. Would like. These are things that I would, I would like to have them do or be uh, in my life. I would enjoy that. And the third column is doesn't matter. And then you go through on the, on the far left side and you create all these lines about anything and everything that you can think of to find your perfect mate. For like from myself, must be a passionate follower of Christ. That was a must-have. As a follower of Christ, I knew that was what God wanted me to have. It was a, a person who loved Jesus. Must-have. And then, and then st- silly things came up, like likes football. Ah, I'd like that. I'd like that. Or likes to go on walks out in, in the country. Eh, it doesn't matter. And think of anything and everything. Now, I create this, this standard criteria, and in some ways, um, it, it served to clarify in my mind what God had for me and how he had made me to be. Now, there, again, there were some things that were flexible, but the must-haves had to be consistent. So when I, when I would meet girls, I would run them through this criteria. Like, for instance, must-have a family, wanted to have children. Must-have. Must uh, want to be in ministry. That was a must-have for me. Um, and so I, I, I did this, and, and it's interesting. It helped me clarify so that when I met my future wife, I would run her through that, and I went, she meets all those requirements. Now, some people say, hey, that's not being, it's being too scientific. Love doesn't work that way, and that might be true. 
But what I have noticed in my ministry and when I was a younger man, and I, I've seen it even more now, is that people are so desperate for love that they will jettison and sacrifice core convictions of their life to get what they believe is love. So they will sacrifice their faith because they want love. And what happens is they do that in this infatuation stage of dating, in desperation, and that when, they, when it all settles after they get married, and that's what usually happens, is, is after the dust settles, the honeymoon kind of settles in, you settle into real life, and you realize that you've married a sinner. And then you go, well, wait a minute, I don't like this. And I've seen it happen time and time again with men and women. And they say, but I, I, why did I do that? I, I, they're not a follower of Christ, and I, I thought I could make them a follower of Christ. And then they, they're suffering the consequences of their choices. So it's better to, to, to uh, do it out on the front end. Now, I'm not here to talk all about relationships, but what I'm saying is, is that same criteria and idea can be translated to churches. That when we look at a church, there's a must-have. There's a would-like, and then there's a doesn't matter. Now, what are the must-haves that God has set forth within his word that are the essentials for what a healthy church should be? Is it about the music, contemporary or traditional? Is it about the dress? Is it about shouting in the middle of service? Is it about doing liturgy or, or wearing a robe? What are, what are these things? Are those, are those extreme important? Or what about, what about preaching? What about the Word of God? What about prayer? What about how we worship? What about church discipline that we heard about here, about the the man who was excommunicated from his church? Because the Word of God speaks to it. Many of these things are things that we're going to be addressing, and um, in the Sunday morning services, in the sermon time, we're going to be looking at the must-haves. We're going to closely, I mean, address sometimes the would-likes and some of the doesn't matter, but we're really going to focus on these essentials. And today's first essential is preaching. Now, preaching is huge for a church, for you as a body, for me, because it is the Word of God that must be at the center of a church. I mean, Christ is the center, yes, built on the foundation of Christ, but it's what Christ also taught, and the, the apostles taught and lived out this fullest expression of the gospel being lived out day by day. It's not about whether a group calls itself a church, they meet in a building, or anything else. A church is not a church if it doesn't have Christ in it with the Word of God at its center. And it's the preaching of God's Word that goes forth to find rest and touch and convict the hearts of men and women. Because it's the Word of God that is God-breathed. It is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And without the Word of God, we have absolutely nothing. Without the Bible, there's nothing. We don't know who Jesus is. Jesus is not proclaimed. It's the Word of God that speaks to the person or the Son of God and tells us how we are to live our life quorum Deo, before the very face of God. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And I invite us all to listen in and see what it means to have, to to God, to have His Word preached and what it He has meant it to be for us. But before we go any further, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence hungry. 
hungry to know, to hunger, hungry to understand. But yet, Lord, I also know that we come in, many of us, with distractions. Our minds are wandering. We have either didn't get enough sleep or we're struggling with something in our family or something we have to face in, later today or in the week. Lord, I pray that you strip away all of those concerns and help us to lay them at your feet and to open our mouths wide that we might taste and see that the Lord is good, that we might receive the truth of your word and that we might go forth changed and transformed for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want us to, to really look at this text. So I, I'd heavily encourage you, if you, if you need to be looking in your Bible. Now, I want to give a little bit of background to this uh, passage we're reading today. It's in 2 Timothy. Paul is the, the Apostle Paul is the author by the Holy Spirit of this passage. It's his final letter of the New Testament. Remember, the New Testament isn't arranged, arranged uh, chronologically. Um, there are different events in different authors' lives, and it has certain ways that it's usually arranged by genre. And Paul is writing to encourage this young pastor named Timothy. And it's his farewell letter to uh, Timothy. And he's giving him a practical instruction on how he is to live, lead, and love. And how he is to serve those around him as he serves in pastoral ministry. But it's not just for Timothy. It's an instruction for all of us to see how the church is to be how it is to be led, how we are to live as well. Now, he starts off in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. See, Paul has a mission for Timothy. He is to preach the word of God, and we are too as well. But what does that look like? See, I think by reading this passage, it is essential for us to be rediscovering our mission to preach the word. God has a mission for us. We need to rediscover this and put the word of God back in its center. That's why we have the Word of God here. That's why we preach from the Word of God. That's why you see, if you go into different churches, and for example, you go into a Catholic church, you don't see the Word of God at the center. You have the Mass, where Christ is sacrificed. But you go into a Protestant church, and you will see that the Word of God is at the center. It is put back in its place to say that we have nothing without the Word of God. We cannot deviate from the Word of God. It is God's Word to us. And it is absolutely essential for us to rediscover our mission to preach the word. Now, preaching is one of the highest duties and responsibilities of, of man, the church. And many men have stepped in to preach the word of God over time. One man, Cotton Mather, who was a Puritan divine in New England almost 300 years ago, he said the great design an intention of the office of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. In other words, it's to put God back in the center of your life where he's in the driver's seat. That God's kingdom might be evident within you and preaching has helped to bring about that fact as the word of God is brought by the Spirit's power with authority and it's brought home unto our life that we might live that truth out. Or... As uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the British Anglican known for his preaching ministry in Great Britain in the mid-20th century, he said this, The work of preaching is the highest and the greatest and the most glorious calling to which anyone can ever 
be called. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and this quote's not up there, was asked one time, why doesn't he, was the most popular man in Great Britain in the 19th century. And they asked why he doesn't run for political office. He said, why would I, why stoop to become the prime minister when God has put me in the, the highest calling known to man? To preach the word of God. It is the most glorious calling to, 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 to which anyone can be called. Now, but the preaching we are talking about today is a certain type of preaching. It's, a, it's known as biblical or expository preaching, where the meaning of the text is drawn out from the text. Haddon Robinson, uh, a professor at Gordon-Conwell, um, and known as the guru on preaching, has defined expository preaching this way. It is the communication of a biblical concept derived through it, from and transmitted through a historical, grammatical, literary study of a passage in its context, which the Holy Spirit first applies to the personality and experience of the preacher, then through him to his hearers. Now, what that means is this. I just can't pick and choose and do Russian roulette and flip through a text and say this is what it means and make it what I want it to mean. No, the author had an intention. The Holy Spirit had a reason and an audience in what he meant to communicate. And my job is to find out exactly what that was and to help bring it to bear on contemporary circumstances. It's not about what I want it to mean. It's what God says it to mean. And as soon as I deviate from that, I've gone into heresy. I am to say and preach the word of God through a historical, what did it mean at the time? Grammatical. The grammar brings out things that we're going to really break that down today. What do words mean? How do we apply them? And through literary, remember, the Bible is made up of different genres. You have poetical literature. You have doctrinal literature. You have apocalyptic literature. You have historical literature. And each of those have to be understood and applied according to the literature that it is. It's all divine literature. But God speaks through these various genres. Brian Chapel, former president of Covenant Theological Seminary and now pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Peoria, Illinois, said it this way, Expository preaching attempts to present and apply the truths of a specific biblical passage. Other types of preaching that proclaim biblical truth are certainly valid. Um... And, uh, and types of preaching that proclaim biblical truth are certainly valid and valuable, but for the beginning preacher and for a regular congregation diet, no preaching type is more important. It's a healthy diet. Anybody ever been in here on the Atkins diet? I went on the Atkins diet, lost a ton of weight, couldn't go to the bathroom, it hurt. Because I was eating unhealthy. It was just all meat, which sounded like the best diet in the world. I just got to eat steak all the time. But then my kidneys started to kind of shut down. <laughs> That's not a good thing. Why? Because I needed a balanced diet. Even now, I, I'm, I'm getting a little bit older, and I have to eat food that I hate. I have to eat that wicked thing called salad. It's disgusting. It's grass and leaves is all it is. But I need it to be healthy, right? Parents, you know that your children have to eat a healthy diet, Right? If not, they would live off Cheez-Its. Right? Junk food, we give them that. They need to eat healthy food. Now, we can live off bad preaching for a period of time, but we need to get back to healthy preaching 
to have a healthy diet of what God has for us. Or more succinctly, Chapel put it this way. Here's a good way to put it. It's the meaning of the passage is the message of the sermon. What the passage means is what I preach. I can't, again, interject what I want it to mean. I have to draw out the meaning and let the meaning stand. Today, we're the queen of our own interpretations and it's truth according to me. No, 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 no. The word of God becomes the objective truth and it determines truth according to Uh, truth for us. And Chapel explains again, he says, biblical exposition binds the preacher and the people to the only source of true spiritual change. You know, it's interesting, the Bible is is considered to be a a, a double-edged sword. It's it's called alive, God-breathed out. And it is cuts us to the to the our soul, convicting us of sin, uh, pushing us onto holiness, showing us who we are. It is a mirror that is unadulterated and shows us who we really are and refuses to lie to us. You ever ask someone how good you look and they lied to you? Ladies, you ever had your, asked your husband, do I look fat in this dress? What did the husband say? If he valued his life, what did he say? Or you looked at him and he says, does this shirt, does my belly look big in this? No. Not if you were a whale, you'd be fine. But here, it's showing a mirror that doesn't lie. Speaks to who we are. Now, it takes us and connects us to the only source of true spiritual change. And as Jesus, we see in the book of Isaiah, that the word of God will go forth and will accomplish the purpose for which he intended it. It will not return void. Chapel goes on, because hearts are transformed when people are confronted with the word of God. Expository preachers are committed to saying what God says. He goes on. We are not concerned to convey our opinions, either philosophies, or speculative meditations. Truths of God proclaimed in such a way that people can see that the concepts derive from Scripture itself and apply it to their lives preoccupy the expository preacher's efforts. Such preaching puts people in immediate contact with the power of the Word. Because it's the word of God that changes hearts and minds. That's why we need to go back to the word of God. Now, the power is not in the preacher, but in the words being preached. It's God's word that is living and active. It is the word of God that is what we are proclaiming. Notice the word for charge. Let's look at the word charge. Now, he says, I charge you. In Greek, it emphasizes witnessing done with a high level of self-involvement, with strong personal interest motivating it. Paul is heavily concerned. He's to preach. It's a solemn or heavy charge that he is giving to young Timothy in the presence of God the Father and Christ himself. In fact, when it is saying that that the living and the dead will be judged, there's a sense of something about to happen. Jesus is coming back. His kingdom will be fully consummated and everyone will be judged in light of what they did with Christ. Did they believe? And did their life then represent that fact? Or did they reject it? In other words, Paul is reminding Timothy what is at stake. He's saying, did you trust in Christ? That's the most important thing. It's just seen in a changed life. Or did you reject him? Did you believe? Paul is reminding Timothy, what is at stake? I charge you in the presence of God the Father, or God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. He is the judge of all. He is the supreme authority, the one we are accountable to. This is not a light thing. This is not fun and games. 
There's urgency to it. He is to preach the word. And we can also see that preaching is, is a charge then and a command. It's a charge and a command. Notice the first words of verse 2. Preach the word. It's in the imperative mood. What for, it's what we are to do. Preach God's word to the world. When is it to be done? Right now. It's in the imperative mood. Active voice it means to proclaim as a herald. To preach. Not being to preach, but preach is your first priority. We have a charge and a command to preach God's word to the world. Now let's look back at verse 2 again. Be ready in season and out of season. The word for ready is, uh, is another command. It literally means to take one stand, to stand by, to be at hand. It's used in a military sense, to stay at one's post. Here it means to be at one's task and indicates that the Christian minister must always be on duty. It reminds me of the Minutemen during the Revolutionary War who were to assemble at a moment's notice at an attack. The idea is, is being ready to preach in season when you're prepared for it, out of season when it is inconvenient. God has a tendency to bring things into our life when it is inconvenient for us. And here he's saying, be ready in season and out of season. You're to be, and and in season means well-timed, suitably, conveniently. When it is convenient, the time we expect to be ready to share it, when we're we're prayed up, when we're at church, it's on Sunday, we have a, a tendency to, we're ready to go. Those are the opportunities we want, but it means also We see out of season, not well-timed, inconvenient, when you don't want to do it, when you're busy doing other stuff. We're to be prepared in season and out of season. And what are we to do with the word? Look back at our text. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, we're to tell people about who Jesus is. We're not to whitewash it. We are to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And that means we must know what the word says about all of life how to make it barren all of life, how to apply it, how to live righteously, how to be holy, to live in purity. We must seek Christ's presence and and supremacy in our relationships, in our marriage, in our child rearing, how we work, how we do our work, how how we are students, how we study, how we the things that we pursue, how we look at success and find acceptance, how we orient our life. Which is to say that our preaching then is to be constant in season and out of season, and it's to be comprehensive. It's to be comprehensive. It's to be all of, all of life. Now, I'm reminded of Acts chapter 20, verse 26, and that's on page 930. 930, and turn there with me, if you would, please, because sometimes we think, oh, they just need to sign the dotted line, say they're going to follow Jesus, and that's it. I'll just take Jesus. I don't need all the extra. It's like buying a car. I just want the base model. I don't need all the frills. I don't need the the sunroof. I don't need the warmer seats. I don't need all that stuff. Just give me the basic model. That's not how it is with Christ, by the way. There is not add-ons to the Christian life. It's all seen as one comprehensive unit. That's why it was called the way early on. It was the whole indication and movement of life. And here we have Paul giving his farewell to the, the church at Ephesus, their elders. And he says this about his ministry there in verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The idea was, is I didn't spare you. I didn't spare your feelings. I didn't try to make you feel good. I didn't just pat you on the back. I talked to you about the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the love of God, the compassion of God, and the mercy of God. But I also told you and showed you that God's judgment is coming. I showed you what sin was, and I confronted you about it. And I'm innocent of the blood. I told them. 
And it's a hearkening back to the book of Ezekiel and the watchman. I don't know if you remember that passage, but God is speaking to this watchman, and he says, if there's an enemy coming, and they'd be on a tower in in their, their town, and if they'd see an enemy coming, their job was to alert the people. What the people did with it was up to, to them. But his job was to alert them. Now, if he didn't alert them, then he was to pay the price for it. He was held responsible for their life because he didn't do anything about it. God would judge them accordingly. That's my job. My job is to warn you, to teach us the word of God, to preach and teach the full counsel of God's word. That's what the preaching ministry of a church is to be about. And notice Paul was so engaged in it that in verse 31, he was even preaching with tears. His heart was so into it. He heard for the people. It is to be constant and comprehensive. We are not just to preach the good things, the fun things. We must preach sin, righteousness, holiness, judgment, hell, and the life to come but also heaven, joy, peace, contentment. All of this is to beg us to ask ourselves the question, how is our life? Are we holding on to sin? Are we we holding on to things that God's word is speaking to us about, but we've become passe about? We begin to endure? I mean, do we realize the heavy nature of what he is saying to us now, that he is calling us to holiness, and we're not to tolerate secret sins in our life? This teaching is to be constant and preaching comprehensive. Now, what are we to do with this word? We're to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, these words are in the aorist tense, imperative mood, another command, active. We're to, it's a command to do these things, not just for pastors, but for the entire family of God to do this with one another. Primarily aimed at pastors and elders to be preaching, but we can see uh, how the entire church is to be living in the ideal the church is to be aspiring to. Now, the Greek word for reprove means to prove with demonstrative evidence, to convict, to reprove. It is to rebuke another with such effectual feeling of the victorious arms of the truth as to bring one, if not always, to a confession, yet at least to a conviction of sin. Now, the word rebuke denotes the idea of censure and sharp rebuke, stopping him right in the middle of it. um, It shuts them up right where they are. Now, the other word is exhort. And the word for that is uh, parakaleson. The root word of that is parakaleo. It is a compound word made of para, which means from or close beside, and the verb kaleo, to call. It means make a call from being close up and personal. The idea is coming alongside one another in love, cheering them on, urging them to follow what God has for them. It means to urge them strongly, appeal to them, urge, exhort, and encourage And the Holy Spirit is actually called the paraclete, the one who comes alongside us to help us follow Jesus and urge and bring the word of God to home on our hearts. Now these words then help us to see that we are at times to be confrontational, and there's other times that we're to be a cheerleader. Let me say this. If you're a Christian, you're going to be by nature confrontational, meaning because the word of God is confrontational. Now I know many of us hate conflict. We don't like being confrontational. But the Word of God is saying that we should bring the truth of God to bear upon others' lives. And today, the thought mainly within the world is just to each his own, shut up, live your faith by yourself, and not have to do anything with it. That's what's good for you. Don't put it, bring it into my house. But you know, Jesus was crucified and died publicly, and I believe that he doesn't want our faith then to be private 
but also public. We're to live that out. We're to be confrontational, bringing the word of God to bear in situations, stepping out in faith. That's what he's saying, reprove or rebuke. That can't be done just on the sideline. Hey, don't do that. It means sitting down and going, I love you. And doing it in a spirit of love, but what you're doing is wrong, according to the word of God. It also means, though, exhorting, encouraging, cheerleader. We all need cheerleaders, right? People that will, will push us. I remember when I was running the marathon in 09, I, I, they told me to write my name on my shirt, and when I, I, it felt like I was trying to write it upside down. It looks like something was seriously wrong. But I'm running on there, and people would yell my name. When you're running a marathon, you need that cheering up. They didn't know me, but just to have someone say my name, to recognize that I was doing something, they'd say, come on, Travis, keep going. And it meant to, to press on. We need that cheering, that cheerleader, people in our life. And we are to encourage one another and press on to follow Christ because we can easily get discouraged. We need to make sure that we are being confrontational as well as being a cheerleader. And I think of confrontational... I think of John the Baptist, a great example of confrontational. Here's a guy that speaks out to King Herod's wife, his marriage. King Herod married his sister-in-law, divorced his first wife, married his, his sister-in-law. She divorced her husband, and, and John the Baptist goes, it's not lawful for you to have her. So King Herod puts him in prison. Think about that. Think about if we were to let our faith go public. Now, we talk today about not sharing faith in the workplace. It's illegal to do. and We've got to obey God rather than men. God doesn't say, stop it at the workplace. Confrontational and a cheerleader. I mean, John the Baptist confronted this uh, sinful king. Or I think of those in... Uh, Acts chapter 8, when Peter and John had healed and many people and the Holy Spirit had been given to many. And then Simon, the magician, saw it and asked if he could pay money to get this gift. And I love what uh, Peter says to him as he's saying, hey, if I give you some money for this, can I get this gift? And he says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you were in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity in Acts 8, 21 through 23. Meaning that he confronted them. He saw it and he rebuked right in the middle of it. It's censure. It's stopping it right where it's at. Speaking up, how often do we see iniquity going on around us and we fail to say something because we're fearful of reprisal? God is calling us to step out in faith, to realize that we are to speak the truth in love, and that means confronting whenever necessary and then cheering them on as well. Now, notice, let's get back to our text. Notice Paul not only tells Timothy to preach the word all the time and exactly what he's to do, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, but he also tells the manner in which it is to be done. Look at verse 2. With complete patience and teaching. Patience and teaching. Now, the word for patience is macrothemia. 
It's a compound word from makros, meaning long, and thymios, or thymos, means passion, anger. It means being long-suffering, keeping my passions at bay, letting my passion extend a long time, being compassionate to them, or waiting sufficient period of time before expressing anger over someone's sin or disobedience. It is the stage of being able to bear up under provocation, forbearance, and patience toward others, especially when they are not doing what they are supposed to be doing. See, the next word, teaching, is the Greek word didache. It means either the act of teaching or a summarized body of teaching. The teaching is here is referring to that which is respectable or is reviewed as, uh, viewed as reliable, time-honored, established, and it's used for the ethical instruction to young converts or those who have already accepted this message and are concerned about the ethical instruction or implications in their life. In other words, when we preach the word, we must make sure that we're doing it compassionately and carefully. That we're doing it carefully. We're being concerned. We're being long-suffering. But we're doing it carefully according to the word of God, not our own opinions. We're also being careful in how we go about it. We're being patient, completely patient with them. It means then that we need to be Bible students, learning the Word of God and know how to apply it to our lives. Now let's look at verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He is saying that you're going to face situations and times. This is what Paul is saying to Timothy and to us. When people will want, not want to hear the word of God, they will reject it. What is our tendency when situations like this present themselves? What do you do? Have you ever proclaimed Christ and to your friends, family, co-workers, And they say, I'm done. I don't want to hear any more. Did they call you names? Maybe make fun of you? Did you get into trouble? Were you tempted to not speak anymore? To be silent? Were you intimidated? See, not too many of us thrive in confrontational situations like that. And I think we shy away from conflict. But Paul here is admonishing Timothy to be holding forth the word of God courageously and without compromise. Courageously and without compromise compromise. It reminds me of Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John had uh, been taken before the Jewish high council. And remember, this is the very people that had been behind Jesus' trial and then his death and his crucifixion and death. And they were fearful after his death that they were hiding in the upper room. And then they become so emboldened after the resurrection of Christ that they begin to testify in these guys' faces. They're no longer hiding. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, on uh, page 912, we read, Now when they saw the boldness, this is the council seeing the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, the resurrection gave them power to take a stand. And then they became bold. Matter of fact, through the book, uh, through Acts chapter 4, time and time again, it says they prayed for boldness, to be bold. Are we bold? Are we bold to proclaim the word of God, to stand up for what is right and what is 
true. See, we have a tendency when we have people criticizing us that, that they say that I don't want the Word of God, I don't like that about the Word of God, we have a tendency to want to leave things out. No. We're to be bold in our proclamation. We are to be holding forth the Word of truth courageously and without compromise. We must always bring forth the Word of God. We can't water it down or make it more palpable. We need to let it out in all of its fire and fury. Let it burn in souls and convict the hearts of men, cutting them deeply. And let that conviction be as a surgeon's scalpel, not to harm but to heal, to bring the light and life of Christ in them. That's where we must come back and make sure that we're relying on the ministry of the Word. That's the next point, relying on the ministry of the Word. We have to rely that the Word of God is what we are to use to reprove, rebuke, and exhort what else does the word do? Look at verse 5. Paul, whose his words themselves become sacred scripture as he is in, inspired by the Spirit to write, and even the other disciples recognize that it was inspired of God. He says to him, As for you, always be sober-minded. The word sober-minded is in the present imperative. It's a command to be sober, to be vigilant, wakeful, considerate, frame of mind, taking heed to what is happening, and pursuing a course with calm and steady aim. See, it's the Word of God that sobers and clears our head. See, that's what the Word of God serves to do. It, it makes us wake up and go, what am I doing? Why am I living this way? Why am I doing this sin? Why am I watching that show? Why do I keep doing, going to that website? Why do I have, say those words? Why do I act in this way? And the Word of God becomes... Um, just this mirror for our soul. And it's this, the word sobers us and clears our head. It also serves to steady us in crisis. Look at the words endure suffering. See, we're to endure hardship and difficulty. These words are reminding us that we are going to face trials and tribulations. That he's going to suffer as he proclaims the word of God. I'm reminded uh, of the, the, the scripture that says, He who goes forth with seed to sow, goes, goes forth weeping with seed to sow, will come again with the sheaves joyfully. I paraphrased it. But the idea is, is he's going forth proclaiming the word, and sorrow is in his heart because he sees how people will turn away from the word of God. And today, we have people not so much, we have people turning away. What really bothers me is the apathy that I see within the church. People don't care. They don't care. They can watch whatever movies they want. They can do whatever they want. God's just this constant companion, all good with their life. Let me tell you right now, you're up for a huge wake-up call. Because we're not the ones that determine that stuff. God is. God is declared within his word. Whatever is pure, whatever is noble. We have people wasting time on hobbies rather than they are on service. When they get to God and they go, hey, God, here's my fantasy football team. It did really well this year. Sorry I couldn't serve you. Or, God, I, I have all of this stuff that I did for myself. I didn't want to have to give to the church. I, I didn't have enough money. Well, I did have enough for my big giant screen TV and my new sound system. I weep. The Word of God is to steady us in crisis. Notice the next part. Do the work of an evangelist. See, an evangelist is one who heralds the good news of Jesus. It's to be our work, our activity. It's to be done with a sense of urgency 
In other words, the word here sends us out proclaiming Christ. See, we're to be looking for opportunities to be sharing our faith at our schools, workplaces, grocery store, in our family, with our friends online and in person. We're to continually keep the activity of sharing the gospel before us, sharing the good news of Christ. I came upon an article a few years ago um, uh, about Penn Jillette. You guys know who Penn Jillette is? Penn and Teller, the two musician team. The guy is really big. He's got his hair in a ponytail. And, and then the, the ever-silent Teller, who never talks. It's this magician comedy act, and they're in Vegas. And uh, Penn Jillette is a very noted and well-known atheist. He says there is no God. But after uh, his performance one night, and people were talking to him, he sees this man on the side just waiting for an opportunity to talk. And he's holding a Bible, a Gideon's Bible. He came over, the man did, handed Gillette the Bible in and said, he goes, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of proselytizing right now. That's what he says to him. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And, and Gillette said, he looked me right in the eyes. He was a good man. And what did Gillette say to that? He said, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist, but he was not defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and gave me this Bible. Gillette then stated, he, goes, I don't, he said, I don't respect people that don't share their faith. He said, I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and hell and people go, could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that's, it's not worth really telling him this because it would make them socially awkward and atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to himself. He goes, how much do you have to hate somebody not to share Christ with them? This is from an atheist who recognizes what's at stake. He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you and there's a certain point where I tackle you, this is much more important than that. It takes an atheist magician to wake us up. How much do we have to hate somebody not to share Christ? We say, it's not my job. Yeah, it is. You believe in a lie. It's everyone in this room's job to share the truth of Christ. Every single one, without exception. If you don't feel that bearing weight on your soul, God forgive you. The atheist magician's understanding, he understands what's at stake. Do we? See, the word serves to not only send us out to share Christ, but it also serves to spur us to fulfill our calling. Spur us to fulfill our calling. See, the Greek word for fulfill, he says fulfill your ministry, is plerophorazon. It's another aorist imperative active. It's a command to do so, to go and fulfill what God has made us to do. It means to carry full, to make full, to fulfill, to accomplish. The aorist imperative calls for a specific act with a note of urgency what are we to fulfill? And what are we to do with urgency? Now, the word next is, he says, ministry. It is diaknia. Uh, di- it means ministry or service. We are to actively fulfill the ministry God has ordained us to have. 
See, if you are a follower of Jesus, the moment he saved you, he gave you a purpose. He put his spirit in you, and he set you apart to do good works. He has divinely fashioned you to minister and serve him. What is it? He gives you spiritual gifts. Mine is to be preaching and teaching, to be shepherding God's people. But what are yours? What has he gifted you to do? Are you fulfilling that purpose that he has for you? Are you doing it? What's keeping you from it? What's your excuse? Let me tell you, it's pitiful, whatever it is. Because I've seen God use people that have been shut-ins to do great ministries that couldn't move, couldn't walk. I've seen people with debilitating diseases, with terrible economic situations, and God used them. God can and will use us. He wants us to spur us on to fulfill our calling. At times it can be very depressing being in ministry, seeing sin, watching pain. Yes, there are joys, times of rejoicing, reconciliation of relationships, but then there's conflict, skewed perspectives, wrong attitudes. It's, it's painful watching someone reject Christ and have them leave the church calling us bigots or filled with hate. See, we've had that happen here. I've seen that firsthand. We had a, a family leave our church because they said we preached hate. Why? Because we said that homosexuality was a sin. But it's not the only sin. Gluttony is a sin. Fornication is a sin. Living together before marriage, it's a sin. Any extramarital outside of the, the covenant marriage is a sin. Gossip is a sin. But they said that we were preaching hate. It reminds me of verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. See, Paul is saying here there will be a coming period of time in Timothy's life, if there wasn't one already, when people would not endure sound teaching They would not endure, stand up underneath it, forbear, suffer it anymore. They can't take what the word of God so that they have to turn away from it, reject it. The teaching they are rejecting is sound teaching, which means to be well, good, or healthy teaching. They have itching ears, which word means to tickle, to scratch, an itch. It's to feel an itching. It's used figuratively of curiosity that looks for interesting and spicy bits of information. See, this teaching is relieved by the message of the new teachers. You see, these people will have strong passions, strong desires, fallen lusts of their flesh that they love more than the truth of God's word. So they will reject God and turn away from the truth in order to satisfy the itch of their flesh. And they will literally surround themselves or pile upon, heap upon themselves, false teachers who preach garbage, false doctrine, juicy tidbits of information that will cause distortion to the word that is not true. They will turn away, plug their ears, not wanting to hear the truth of who Christ is anymore. These are those who say to you, stop preaching to me, I don't want to hear it. They will try and get you to shut up any way they can, get you censured, 
fired or gossip about you. Have you had that? It's sad watching someone believing and living a lie. You see, the word serves to remind us that there will always be those who spurn the word for something more comfortable. There will always be those who spurn the word. They don't want to hear it. They'll try to stop it for something more comfortable. It's painful to see. There will always be those who will hate what we believe. To them, we are the smell of death. This cannot be avoided. Until Jesus comes again, we are told that we will always, there will always be false teachers, always be suffering, always be those who will misunderstand and distort what we are trying to say and then use that as an excuse to reject Christ. It's a sad thing, something we ought to mourn. John Piper said this about the goal of preaching. He said, The goal of preaching is the glory of God reflected in the glad submission to his creation or of his creation. Now, I focused on the heaviness. I want to give you some really good news. I want to teach us all how we can be reaping the momentous blessings of the word. The gospel is good news. It's good news to those who are lost. It's sad because we see the condemnation of the wicked. But it's also good news because we see that people have opportunity for salvation. There's joy. There's grace. There's mercy. And it's, there's hope. And it's a living hope that cannot be changed. And, and God gives us opportunity to be reaping the momentous blessing of the word that it promises. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 for a moment. It's just a couple of books before uh, 2 Timothy, page 986. Paul says and talks about how there are those, excuse me, who heard the word of God, but they received it differently. He says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. So we have to receive these words of Scripture as the Word of God because that's what it is, the words of God to us and how we are to live and order our lives. And how do we reap these momentous blessings the Scripture promises? I want to give you some practical tips. First of all, it requires feasting on it. Feasting on the Word of God. Do you read the Word of God? Do you read the Bible? Do you let it read you? Feasting on it, exploring it, letting the truth of God come to bear upon your heart, seeking to order our life underneath it. Let it perform its surgery on our soul day by day. We're to be feasting on it and realize the truth of his word to us. And secondly, it means applying it applying it to our lives. We can't just hear what it says. We have to apply it. I mean, feasting on it also means not just studying it for ourselves, but hearing it preached. There's some great, I mean, this is one of the most exciting times to live in the history of man when it comes to hearing the word of God preached. Because we have opportunity to hear preachers from all over the world and far off places like Tuvalu or Vanuatu or in Malaysia or China or India or Bhutan. In Nepal, we, we can hear preachers in Africa, and many of these preachers are speaking in English. Don't just think that you can only hear American preachers. God doesn't just speak to Americans. God speaks to Africans and Swiss. 
He speaks to Brits as well as Scots. He, he, he speaks to those in Germany. He speaks to everyone. And those in South America, in Uruguay or Paraguay, or in Chile, God's word is not bound. And it's an opportunity to turn on a place like Moody Radio and hear Alistair Begg or Tony Evans. Hear some of these great preachers and what God is saying through them to feast on it and then apply it. Don't just go away and not apply the truth. Seek to apply the truth of Christ in your heart. Next, it means interacting with others about it. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We need to be with other believers discussing and applying the truth of God's word, which means we need to be submitting our interpretations and our understanding to the greater community of believers so we can make sure that what we are are interpreting and applying is sound and right and applied correctly. This is why small groups are important, and being in church on Sunday or being in our Equipping You classes at Generations that we can learn how to apply this together and act interacting with others about the Word of God. Next, we must make sure that we are training others in it. We're to be training others to study the Word of God. Have you been trained? Do you need training? Uh, we're here to help. If it means taking classes, whether it's here at Generations or, or going online, sent up through Moody's Extension Studies, become a student of the Word of God. Lastly, we must make sure that we are holding on to the Word no matter what. God will prove himself true, though every man is proven a liar. We're to apply the word. Hold on to the truth of it. We should not fear truth. Because all truth is God's truth. And if it's true, then it's going to go in proportion to the word of God. And if it's not, then the word of God will display that and show it. We're to be holding on to the word of God no matter what. We we cannot let the word of God go. We must fight for it, for without it, we have nothing. Now notice this. I don't know if you've noticed it or not. You have feasting, applying, interacting, training, and holding. And the first letters all come together to spell the word faith. Faith. See, it is through preaching the word of God that God gives us faith. And in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, we hear this. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. See, it's through the proclamation of God's word that we get faith. When we are under the word of God, God grants us faith. It encourages our faith. It strengthens our faith. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Feasting on it, applying it, um, being with other believers, interacting with others about it, training and holding on to it no matter what, that helps us grow our faith. That we might extend the the word of truth to those who are lost. We are to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. It's a must-have of the church. It is a non-negotiable. I could spend, and I could spend hours with uh, going through passage after passage where the word of God, I mean, the Bible tells us we're to preach and speak the truth of his word and how preaching transforms hearts and minds. And the image that I have in my mind when I'm preaching is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. When, when Ezekiel is standing at the valley of dry bones, and the Spirit of God says to him, prophesy, O son of man, prophesy. And he starts speaking. And what happens to those bones start rattling. And then they come together, and, and then there becomes muscle and sinews. And, and then, then you have skin, and then standing before him is a vast army. 
And how did that happen? Because he was prophesying, speaking the word of truth, and life was gathering. And it's a picture of, of Israel being revived, but it's also a picture of what happens when the word of God is proclaimed, is that life comes, and that, and that people who are once dry bones can become living and true, the real people that God has made them to be. It's a great picture. So let's hold on to this essential. Let's proclaim the word of God. Let's submit ourselves to the teaching of the word that we might be, proclaim, be transformed. Letting the word of God and the meaning of the word of God determine the message of God so that we might become more like the son of God. Let's pray. Father, we do come into your presence and, and we know all too well our own sin our own struggles. We know how often we quickly turn from the word of truth, how we need to govern our tongues and our mouths, how we need to have a governor on our thoughts and our attitudes. And Lord, how often we've been fearful and shied away from proclaiming your truth. And Lord, I'm reminded of Gideon who was so fearful that he hid behind a tree to do his work, and yet you came to him and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Lord, we might be fearful, but we also know that when your spirit comes into us and that we believe and adhere to your word, that we are empowered and become mighty warriors. And that according to your word, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that, that we can do more than we could ever ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. And we know that the church is, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against your people, the church. And Lord, help us to, to remain steadfast, to be strong, fully standing and bound to the word of God, knowing that it, the word of God will accomplish the purpose for which you have intended it, and it will not return void. Lord, I pray that you give us a love for the word here at this church as people, that we might honor it reverently, and we might seek to apply the truths therein to our lives, that we might be more like you. Convict us of sin, Push us onto righteousness and holiness and purity in every aspect of our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.